1987 Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 18. Sharpen your tools, everyone, for a nice clean cut with axe. To review the book, I'm joined by... To people the police are keen to talk to about the incident, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Chop, chop. And here's your usual reminder that you can find us across all social media and podcast apps as Hark87Podcast. And if you'd like to drop us uh, perhaps $3 for a digital coffee via PayPal, you can visit coffee.com, ko-fi.com slash harkpodcast. And you can donate towards running the show. And you can use the hashtag LitHappens if you want to find other literature and books-based podcasts online. That's the written bit out of the way. It's all downhill from here. (laughs) What I thought we might do in this episode, fellas, is a bit of an overview of the series. Mm -hmm. So we're 18 books in and we're... It starts in 56. We've reached 1964 with this book. So for the benefit of perhaps a new listener... Should there be any? Hello, new listener. <laughs> Could we describe what the 87th Precinct series is all about? What is it? Well, it's, it's a series that uh, details the daily work of, of a busy police force in a, a New York-like city on the east coast of the USA. Yeah. Specifically um, the detective division of that precinct. Well, absolutely, yeah. No, none of your uniformed cops there particularly or they crop up occasionally yeah and it's in the mold of a police procedural absolutely so we're very specifically following well most of the time at least specifically following the actual kind of ins and outs of like what actually happens during a police investigation so yeah and like that runs right down to the forms they use for filling in incident reports the forensic details the method of catching, i.e. taking the calls in the first place, who's on shifts and this sort of thing. All very administrative, which might not sound exciting from the outside, mm. but actually gives it a very real feel. It's, uh, it's, it's a new level of realism for the detective novel, really. It's taken away from uh, romantic private investigator swinging whiskey from a bottle in his drawer and following gangsters about, or some kind of high society gentleman... Um, in a mansion, gathering everyone in the drawing room to tell them who committed the murder. It's it's definitely taken crime literature back to real life, really, which is... Yeah, because in most other um, literature at the time, the police were either incompetent or corrupt. Yeah, they were there to be l- lustrad. Yeah, you know, totally kind of getting in the way of yeah. solving it, whereas here they're absolutely central to the stories and the resolution of those stories. And he, there's a, a, a fairly fixed cast, although that's yeah. taken a little bit of time to bed down who that fixed cast right. is. And then there's other characters who come and go and disappear for quite a while and then suddenly come back as though they've never been away. As an important point as well, it's a gestalt hero. So although we, I guess we have Steve Carell, who's maybe the, the most often featured detective, the, the hero is actually the entire squad, so... It's not just a single sort of um, heroic figure amidst a crowd of mm. incompetence or anything like that. What's it's quite nice is all the different detectives that feature in this as part of this hero are individual characters. So it isn't they aren't just plain undistinguishable cops. They mm. all have particular traits and behaviours, and that includes being bad cops occasionally. Absolutely, yeah. Some it's, of them. It is an attempt to realistically, to some extent at least, portray a police force. So mm-hmm. while there are good cops who are doing their job, even even the good cops sometimes have their negative moments. I think in the book we're about to discuss, there's some racial profiling. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, then there are also cops who are plain bad, yeah. really, uh, who the others have to work with. And we see that working relationship as well, which is really fascinating, I think. And then another curiosity as well, which is one of the, the good things about the series, is they're all uh, set at a particular time. They're all um, topical matters when when they were set from 54... 56. 56. 
to 64 in this, but curiously, none of the characters ever really get any older. Oh, no. they, they, so they do all... very gradually, possibly. Like, life they, moves on a little bit, but... Like dog years in reverse kind of thing. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you know, kind, even at this point, you, you probably wouldn't... Well, you certainly don't pick it up reading them once a month. I suppose if you were thinking, oh, I started reading those McBain's ten years ago and nobody's ever got any older, you know, <laughs> they still got the same boss and whatnot, but... Yeah, once you, you know... Which makes it kind of a, yeah. very easy to pick any one of them up. Absolutely. Indeed, in, in yeah, not, you'd have to you're totally... you're not laden down by a backlog of history, although mm. it is there if you know where it, where to look and it yeah. will be referred to. You're not sort of believing that you've been watching the same cops do the same job for 30 years by the exactly. mid-80s or whatever. Yeah, you know, 2005, Steve Carell must have been about 90. But, yeah, uh... he would have been getting on. <laughs> So that was just a little brief overview of the series. I would have imagined everyone knows this anyway, but it's worth restating because <laughs> it's an addictive series. It's got common elements that make you come back over and over again. And one of the things we often discuss is the the things in the book, the what we call the 87th Precinct bingo sheet. The weather. Things like the weather descriptions, descriptions of the city being anthropomorphised or whatever behaviours, um, characters, things like that, which we will refer to. But we've come to a fairly interesting book, which we'll get to in a second. I was asked a couple of questions, but one particularly, in general, in a general sense, not necessarily about the 87th Precinct, but hmm. we were asked, who was McBain's favourite author? Ooh. And if you read in the 87th Precinct, I think it's quite hard to tell. Hmm. He clearly comes from an American tradition, comes off the back of detective fiction. I mean, who would you guess at if you didn't sort of know? I don't know. Do you actually know? I've got some information. Did you ask uh, Otto? I didn't ask him, actually, no. no. But this is this is discoverable information. But... Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, the, I know there have been prior standalone police procedurals, but that kind of detective novel was fairly unprecedented, wasn't it? So, yeah. I don't know, you, would you guess, like, Chandler or... Yeah. Hammett. Yeah. The, the... Well, yeah, exactly, right. straight off the first two mystery writers off the bat, huh. uh, Raymond Chaniel... Chandler? Raymond Chaniel? <laughs> no one's heard of Raymond Chaniel. He's underrated, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. He needs his own podcast, I would yeah. say. My apologies to Raymond Chandler there, and to Raymond... Uh, Chaniel, <laughs> both of them, sorry. So Chandler and Hammett, Dashiell Hammett, and also James M. Kane. Mm. These were the mystery Ooh, yeah. ones that were sort of named Not read any of his as inspirations for McBain, particularly. Yeah. Of course, McBain's the pseudonym for Evan Hunter, mm. and his other influences he stated, and I found this in a, he, a reproduction of an answer he gave to someone on a blog years ago, was also Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. So the, the great American authors yeah. of the 20th century. That makes sense, yeah. Who presumably brought more of an influence to bear on Evan Hunter's standalone work. Hmm. But I've not read masses of that, so it's quite hard to say. I, I think, like, sort of Hemingway with the sort of direct, um, kind of compact prose and these sort of punchy little sentences, you can definitely see the Have you read much Hemingway? Uh, only a couple of bits, but I, 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 can, I, can, I can see that that would make sense. Yeah. So... There was a little question there. That was submitted by my brother. Oh. Who bought his first McBain books in the wild when we were in London on the weekend. Yes. So we found yeah, them... in a headlock at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, the addictive nature of these books is such that it doesn't take much once they've got their hooks into you no. to make you want to collect them and read them. Very true. And Gary is... Now reading them in order as well, so it's the only way to read them. Yeah, opinion. it's exactly how I didn't read them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we're doing this now, so we can remedy that, isn't it? Absolutely. So we're going to move on to our contextual information. Oh. We might even get to the book at some point. Maybe. Maybe well, these nineteen sixty four factoids. Yes. Yeah. So I can tell you that the copyright registration for the book was eleventh of September, nineteen sixty four. When was the last book previous to this? We seem it to have jumped about a year. This year, yeah. I was so, so what was got, he doing in that time? Well, I can tell you a little bit of what he was doing in that time. Between this and the last 87th Precinct book, he produced a novel as Evan Hunter called Budwing, oh, which is one of his yeah. big literary successes, Indeed. and became a film called Mr. Budwing. 
and I think I'll save information about that and perhaps do it as a side pod or something because cool. I'd really like to watch the film. But that was a big Evan Hunter literary novel. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a play called The Easter Man or A Race of Hairy Men. Excellent. Mm. I'm not entirely sure how much success he had as a playwright. I don't know that it was his finest work, or certainly wasn't seen as. With titles like that, though, how could he go wrong? With a race of hairy men, yeah, I don't know. One thing I also know he did, in 1964, in July, he appeared on a programme called The World of Books on the BBC Home Service. Yes. As Evan Hunter being interviewed about Budwing, and as Ed McBain being (laughs) interviewed about Like Love. Oh, right. oh, cool. Look before. Did he, did he, like, divide it up and come back doing a funny voice? I would hope so. I really hope so. This, I assume this exists in the archive somewhere. Suddenly I can't find a recording of it. I'll have to contact the BBC and see if there's any way to get hold of it. Well, they might have deleted it like they did with so much of their stuff. Indeed. So let's get into the usual thing. The quiz of 1964. Oh. So what do you reckon was in the charts around September 1964? The Beatles. Funnily enough, not in the top five in either America or the UK. The outrageous. I've been waiting the, to say that kinks. for ages. Follow that thought, Steve-O. The Kings. Well, <laughs> how do you follow it? Uh, well, I think you, 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 you really got oh, me. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Number one I in thought the it UK. wasn't the Kinks, but I had to follow that. Uh, yeah. in... the, the Clinks? The Kinks. <laughs> no, it was You Really Got Me by The Kinks was yeah, number one in the UK. Fair enough. I mean, the Beatles were in the charts. They were... The Hollies. Dominating they, uh, a lot of them, but... Hollies would have been thereabouts by then too, I'd imagine, but maybe not right there at the exact no, time. No, not in the top yeah. fives of either here or America. Hmm. Our top five was, you really got me there with kinks, Have I the Right by Honeycombs. Oh, um, yes. Have I the, the Right oh, to hold you. Oh, that's, that's, yep. a, that's a passionate song, that, isn't, <laughs> isn't it? it? Isn't it just? Hasn't that got drums a bit like Dave Clark Five? Yes, yeah, proper stomper, isn't it? Jum, jum, jum. That's the one. Oh, I don't, I don't know this song. Oh, and the look on your faces, it sounds brilliant. Oh, I reckon you know if you've heard it. There's one word that would describe it uh, as a bit of a stomper. It is yeah. a stomper. A stomper. I'll bear that. We'll listen to it later. <laughs> uh, number three was I Won't Forget You by Jim Reeves. I uh, think, I uh, <laughs> that joke writes itself. It does. I Wouldn't Trade You for the World by The Bachelors. I don't know that one. No, not right. And The Crying Game by Dave Berry. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, the Beatles were at number 10 in the charts at that point with Hard Day's Night. But they'd Oof. been at number one and they'd been there for nine weeks. Yes, so, indeed. So there. In America, number one was House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. Oh, yeah, they were massive in the States. They were importing sort of blues back to America. Yeah. And, uh, some lads from Newcastle importing lead belly to the States is crazy, isn't it? It's a very strange thing, but a lot of that cultural exchange... Oh, no, I'm, you know what, I'm not going to talk about that. That's my other life as a music person popular music historian thing where did our love go by the supremes oh stoner because by the dave clark dave clark five i think they made more impact in the states than they did here really well if dave clark's to be believed he was bigger than the beatles in the states yeah with Mm. with his live footage with beatles audiences um edited in yeah outrageous they were followed in at number four by everybody loves somebody by dean martin so, nice. a bit of a smoothie in there. Mm-hmm. And a song called Bread and Butter by the New Beats. Don't know I that. I like bread and butter. Oh, I do know it then. I like toast and jam. Is that, that the one, do you think? I like croissants and cakes and other products made with wheat. That's the one? That's Those the are thing. the exact yeah. lyrics, I believe. So, I didn't know it. <laughs> the winner of the best picture in 1964 was My Fair Lady. Oh, right. So, who do you think won best actor? Rex Harrison, surely. Rex Harrison. For that speak singing. We could do the rest of the podcast in Rex Harrison's voice as if he sang a song. (laughs) But I've grown accustomed to her face. (laughs) She almost makes the name again. It was a very strange... I mean, he's brilliant, Rex Harrison, but it's a very strange performance. (laughs) Well, come on, let's get it out of the way. Let's get it out of the way. Two carry-on films in 1964. Two quite good ones, I think. I always, I always say the wrong one. So, um, You've been pitching camping for a while, and I still don't think we're there yet. Uh, Sergeant, is that one? You keep doing that every time. That was the <laughs> first one. <laughs> I like guessing that one. Was that the first one? Yes, you say that every time as well. <laughs> Do I? <laughs> yeah. uh, ca- carry on, Milkman. <laughs> still doesn't exist. Um, 
How did they miss that one? I know. You'd have thought that would be full of all sorts of. See, I've, I've seen behavior. so few of them that uh, <laughs> carry on. At least tax what? inspector. Carry on tax inspector. Carry on motorway. Oh, imagine that. It's well. There's one of the big, epic colour ones. Uh, Cleopatra. Carry on, Cleo. Captain, oh, uh, there we go. Yes. And one of the down to earth black and white ones. Camping. <laughs> colour and a bit later, I think. All right. Carry on, spying. Ooh, which oh. is done in reaction to the fact that the James Bond films come out. So I should not should have ever heard of that one. It's quite good, actually. I seem to remember Bernard Cribbins has quite a good part in that. Uh, you know you're in safe hands if Bernie's uh, got a... Who was the spy? Role. Cribbins? I think Cribbins is, is, is one of the spies, as is Kenneth Williams. Of course. All hilarity ensues. I don't think mm. I've ever seen it all the way through, but it's... Yeah, that, that basically comes off the back of James Bond hmm. being a big cultural phenomenon yeah. at the time. So, like, Goldfinger was a massive hit that year. Of course. Yeah. As was... From Russia with Love, certainly as they went over to America. Hard Day's Night, obviously a big movie for the Beatles, one of my favourite films. Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Um, I think the sequel due shortly. Yes, the trailer for the sequel sequel came out the other day. Mm. I think you'll find Bed Knobs and Broomsticks was released a long, long time ago. That's true. (laughs) As a side fact. That's a sequel to Mary Poppins. It's not a sequel it to Mary Poppins. It is. I think you will find it is. Okay, you... Might not have Mary Poppins in it, but it's still a well, sequel. Well, it's still essentially the same film. It's some live action and some animation. It's... I like Bedknobs and Broomsticks. But, yeah, the sequel to Mary Poppins is coming out at Christmas. I watched the trailer the other day and cried a little bit because I really like Mary Poppins and it makes me cry. Because I'm a big softy. Are there any cameos from... From someone such as Dick Van Dyke? Yeah. Maybe there is. Or oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my lord. Excellent. Well, he's in the trailer, yeah. Is he? Yeah. Crikey. Julie Andrews isn't in it, I don't think. Isn't she? No. Hmm. Anyway, Hammer Horror Films. Oh. There's one, two, three, four, five, I think, in that year. Well, we'll be getting him. Is he actually into horror territory yet? Yeah, or these are mainly horror? horror, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're still a couple of years off them bringing Dracula back. Yeah. Mm. That was 60... Six, I would think. They haven't brought back Frankenstein yet, no. Maybe they have Morgan Brown. Uh, Frank- Revenge of Frankenstein. No, he's not revenging uh, yet. Frankenstein. He's monster. No, Frankenstein as... Frank- the curse of Frankenstein. Frankenstein's motorway. Frankenstein's... <laughs> is it? Is Frankenstein creating woman. Um, no, it's evil of Frankenstein. Oh, evil of... See, I used to, once upon a time, I would have known all this. Yeah, Evil of Frankenstein. And there was one of the Mummy films. Uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb? No. Revenge of the Mummy? No. What is it? Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Curse. Ah. Is it Curse Frankenstein? Did I? I don't know. <laughs> well, the blank you of can, blank. Yeah, you can be uh, excused with Hammer Horror films. Curse, Claw, <laughs> just yeah. like blood. Revenge, Blood. It's just got, um, got three little baskets with words and they pick yeah. out. And we're ma- this year we are making it's like the like the draw for the football. It's, it's yeah. just someone t- turning a tombola and picking out words. Yeah, that'd be a good way. Yeah, they also did the Gorgon. Oh, I was, was going to say the Gorgon. I remember the Gorgon. Yeah, and one called Nightmare, just Nightmare, and one called Devil Ship Pirates. Oh yeah, I've oh, seen, right. never seen that. Nightmare, mm. sadly, I, I assume not the, the film that was a precursor of uh, the the series featuring Treyguard, the Dungeon Master. Oh, no, sadly not. Talk about British ephemera, that's a whole new level <laughs> if you're talking about Nightmare with a K. Why are we talking about that? Because Hammer Horror Film was called Nightmare. Oh! But it's got nothing to do with Nightmare. Oh, right. Sorry, I have sadly. That, that, not deliberately sending us off. Talking about stomping music. Yeah. Had a bit of an Iron Maiden kind of bad beat to it, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Iron Maid meets Dave Clark Five meets um, meets Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, with ELP watching from the wings. Yeah, it is a bit ELP like, isn't it? <laughs> Keith Emerson would have been very happy he had would. he penned that one. If you've joined us to hear about Ed McBain books, I do apologise. We will get round to it. So, it was a big year politically because in 1964 we had a general election in this. Harold Wilson. Harold Wilson becomes the Prime Minister. We go from a Conservative government to a Labour government. Quite a narrow margin of victory. It was, yeah. That's why they had another general election in 66. Yeah, and to mm. sort of solidify the, the vote, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And in America, there was the Democratic landslide where the uh, 
the Democrats come in and Lyndon B. Johnson mm. becomes president. And so both him and Harold Wilson were leaders for quite a long while, I think. Good, Until of, 1970, most, most old of the Harold. 60s, wasn't it? Harold? And there's not much really to... to well, there's always stuff to talk about, about TV, but two big ones for the UK are Top of the Pops. Yes. Started in 1964. That was a really big, important pop show with lots of bands performing live. It was a chart rundown show, essentially, mm. wasn't it? That was a huge part of our growing up. Absolutely. Very sad when that ended. So that how many years after Ready Steady Go was that then? Contemporary. Well, after. Yeah, about the same time, were they? Slightly. It was a, yeah, maybe slightly after, and maybe as a reaction to Ready Steady Go, but it was close. There are other people who are scholars of such things, but mm-hmm. yeah, we're all around the same time. There's quite a few things. Yeah, the 6-5 special and a, a few other bits like Top that. Top of the Pops was the one that, that lasted. Mm. And also Match of the Day mm-hmm. starts in 1964, oh, right. okay. the, the football scores programme that I'm Highlights, pretty, yeah. not really bothered about. <laughs> You've probably watched hours of in your life, I'm sure. Well, a staple of British television, I suppose, mm-hmm. as much as else is. So, shall we get on to the book? I suppose. Well, before we do that, <laughs> we'll just take a quick break to advertise one of our friends. Do you love books and booze? Do you like themed food? Do you like a mixture of high and lowbrow? Well then, welcome to Loaded Literature. We're your hosts. I'm Victoria. I'm Hale. And I'm Anya. This podcast began as a book club that expanded beyond our reading room. We cover one book in a month and break it down by analysis, background context, and adaptions. All of which will be paired with alcohol and food. So please, come join our book club. Episodes air Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at LoadedLiteraturePodcast.com, uh, Loaded Lit Pod on Twitter, or Loaded Literature on Instagram. We all have our own individual social media, so please follow us there as well, and come join the conversation. So here we are in 1964 with the novel Axe, or if you live in the UK... Axe. <laughs> you would have heard the silent E there. The Important way I was... distinction there, yeah. Well, Definitely. this is what I'm, one thing I will, you know, remain proud about is as British readers, we get more letters of McBain because of the word axe being spelt correctly. And if we factor that in, so words like colour are spelt mm. with the extra letter as well, we get so much more McBain for our money. A lot more value, definitely. I, well, may I have general impressions First off, you guys, what do you think of this one? Sounds like a character, that, doesn't it? General impressions. General impressions. <laughs> I don't remember him. Um, <laughs> my general impression uh, would be this is a perhaps a more traditional whodunit in the mm. story arc sense. Perhaps less sideshowy stuff. Perhaps less so. dual plotting. It's pretty mm. much... Some guys ended up with an axe encrusted in his head. Let's find out who did it, really. Yeah, the, the, it kind um, of... It's, no street gangs, no... Yeah, there's very, yeah, little, yeah. very little sort of, like, Colour. outside... Yeah, the, the, exactly the word I was looking for, yeah. It's kind of meat and potatoes crime novel stuff, isn't it? It, it, it is, yeah. Gets in there, gets the job done. And You wonder whether he, like, a conscious effort of... Yeah, full. You know, it's hundred percent. Let's solve the crime. Really, there's a few sides here sure, and there. But I'm, I wonder whether it's one of the shorter ones in the in this period because it's only a hundred and forty. It's, it's less than hundred and forty pages in in the version I've got, and presumably the ones mm. you've got as well. And only ten chapters. They usually run a few chapters mm. more than that, even if they only run say thirty pages more mm. or something. It is very straightforward, and I was wondering, I. I put a call out for opinions on this, and I got a couple back from some of our regular contributors who suggested that it was boring. Oh, that's um, a little harsh. Possibly, possibly. A dud of a story was one of the phrases. Am I reading a McBain? Where's the snap and cheek? And someone else saying, tedious indeed. I, I, I understand where people are coming from. I think... You know, people are maybe being a little bit harsh in their appraisal of this novel. Uh, I'm sure we'll, you well, know, we'll, once we get Kenneth fired up, we'll find out where we stand on this. But I under- I think I understand where those opinions uh, come from. 
off the back of some of the recent ones yeah and and the run in general this is if this was a tv episode this would be a sort of solid mid-series episode mm. that keeps the story moving forward but doesn't necessarily do anything explosive and, and insane yeah. but it's one that you could rely on if you see what i mean yeah that's my yeah, yeah. idea yeah. it's a solid pot boiler but it's 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 not much more maybe but but i think i i would say it's a li- uh, quite interesting and refreshing in that way and i think a lot of the interest in this is not so much the mystery of the uh, uh, well uh, as well as the mystery of the uh, the who did it the the mystery of the victim as well because you're presented with this yeah, that's 87 point. year that's old true. janitor who was loaded somehow and yeah. it, it takes 95% yeah. of the I book did. to try and work out how that would be who's got a totally bonkers family who I think are uh, very interesting. I do quite like a sort of a, a mystery victim as well. Yeah, and it's something he's done he, before in Killer's Choice, but I think he actually like carries it off a lot better in yeah, this one. Yeah. Was Killer's Choice the one with the 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 girl who died in, in the, the liquor store? In the liquor store, yeah. yeah. Annie Boone. Yeah, yeah whereas who, this... who has lots of intriguing mystery which he just kind of gets bored of and doesn't bother to explain at all. Whereas this you've got a guy who's like, you know, even in 60s America would be past retirement age and yeah. lives in a nice house in a nice neighbourhood out in the you in know suburb, sub- yeah. suburbia and um, has got a crazy wife and a um, an interesting son. Yeah, kind of feel um, like after reading those co- uh, those comments now, uh, this episode is going to be us trying to make a case for well, no, for, for this book. No, I'm, but I'm, um, my, my, my uh, before I heard that, I, I, I did I did like it actually. Cool. Well, I've, I've got a couple of contemporary reviews. I'll perhaps pass to Morgan to uh, scan through. Oh, so the usual reviewers that you can rely on finding a review by are our old friend Anthony Boucher in the New York Times and also the guy who writes Morris, whatever his name is, in the Observer. Does so, does Boucher like it yet again or he does. Hmm. <laughs> what's the what's the gist of the uh, New York Times one, Morgan? Uh, it's not very long, is it? So I can just just uh, give you the entire it? thing. Yep. Unless one counts V in the suspense category, Ed McBain's axe must have the shortest title of any suspense novel. The weapon is embedded in the skull of an 86-year-old janitor who has been running a crap game in his basement. Spoilers, sorry. Wow. Um, the complications of his death make one of the best cases yet for Steve Carella and the other boys of the 87th Precinct. The writing is, if anything, even above McBain's usual level of crisp competence. Yeah. So there we go. Take that, yeah. naysayers. You want to look at that bottom review there, Steve. That's the British review oh, for right, when it okay. came out in Hamish Hamilton edition. Is there a, something missing here? The Axe. Oh, no, he's called. called it the wrong name. The Axe uh, by Ed McBain. Blank aged New York apartment house I janitor. I think that blank is just a, a very long typographical uh, dash. <laughs> dash. Or oh, aged. Yes. Oh, I see what you mean. Not aged. Right. <laughs> aged New York apartment house janitor with dotty wife and son found in basement with skull deeply cleft. Full stop. <laughs> Steve Carella's investigation undercovers under- a network of petty swindling. Uh, it takes him into the underworld of drunken bumdom. <laughs> bumdom. Nice. Do you know what? I I've like read it. that several times and that word never leapt out at me until you pronounced it. It's not boredom, though, is it? Well, I don't think no, so. Bumdom. That's, that's that says bumdom. Yeah, that says bumdom. Oh, no, I'm not very good at reading out. I think we might have got the title for this episode. <laughs> uh, eccentric characters inc- include the members of the Happy Kids, a club for octogenarians. Uh, good realistic dialogue gives you a strong feel of New York in winter. A satisfactory instalment of the saga of the 87th precinct. <laughs> And that's from Maurice Richardson, The Observer, 13th of December, 64. I do hope that is how he speaks. Well, well one would imagine so. The, the act, yeah, sorry for my uh, stuttering was, start uh, to that. I, was, uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, right. one sentence. So it, it was clearly well received at the time. Yeah. And it, I think that's very interesting, given hmm. that I know that the people who made the comments about it online to us love the series. Hmm. And so for it to be poo-pooed by them mm. in contrast that's, that's to this very early enthusiasm by these reviewers is quite interesting it is so I think they've given away not given away they've given a sense of the plot mm. someone is murdered in a basement he's got an axe in his head the book is called Axe yep 
the investigation begins. There's an immediate prime suspect. But that doesn't last very long, to be fair. But so it, you it, mentioned it, this before. You, but you, yeah. you look at the back of my book and it's as though he's the main suspect for the entire novel, whereas he's, he's the prime suspect for about half a page, isn't he? Yeah. Carella decides he yeah. didn't do it. You've talked about racial profiling. Mm. So one of the first things that happens is this is a poor neighbourhood where this guy is the janitor and someone who he hires as a guy to chop wood is a big black guy who is portrayed as being, I don't want to say backwards, but I'm afraid that's the sort of word that would be used at the time. Mm. Perhaps a bit, you know... A bit of a homebody, he lives with his mother still as a, as a grown man and he's hired to chop wood. I hated saying backwards, I wish I hadn't said that now. But that's, that's how it's, it comes across. And immediately yeah. the suggestion is, well, he's big, he's black, he probably did the crime because he chops wood, therefore mm. he knows where the axe is. Well, he, yeah, he, he, he doesn't do himself any favour by, he gives, yeah, kind of like fairly strange answers to the questions that he's asked and you yeah. think he you think he's being cheeky and yeah. being a bit petulant. He's where... a bit awkward and, and doesn't really understand the best way of answering the questions yeah. and they interpret that as being aggressive. And... Where's the axe in the tool shed? Where's the tool shed in the yard? Yeah, where was the axe? Yeah, well, you know, it just goes around in a circle. When I first started reading that section, I was thinking, oh, this is really uncomfortable to read now, but actually it's probably... What happens with the police quite a lot of the time now? Yes, well, this is something that's, if anything, is probably worse now than it was it's, then. Yeah, it's, it, it, it still seems alarmingly pertinent, if nothing else. It's, we could um, definitely do with a few more Steve Carellas out there asking these questions, because mm. Carellas, the, the guy who realises, well, he needs more time to answer the question, and he's the opportunity, and we need to give him the chance to, under, you know, we need to understand him before we leap to judgement here. And very quickly, he's sort of eliminated from inquiries. Mm. He comes back into it later on, of course, yeah. as things come to a head. Mm. But it's... Oh, come to a head, yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. But we very quickly meet the victim's family, who is his aged wife, who's got paranoid schizophrenia, and he takes some joy in writing her mania on the page mm. as... as Quite extreme and mysterious. They live mm. out in a place called New Essex, mm. which I thought was supposed to be like a, a, an alternative New Hampshire, mm. but he says it's only fifteen minutes outside the city. So not really, no. So I assume fifteen miles. He said, "Doesn't he say fifteen miles?" Did he say fifteen miles. I think he said. Either way, that still wouldn't even be so. Yeah, New it's, Hampshire it's, territory. It's, no. So I think it's there is a place with the word name Essex somewhere outside of New York, not yeah. very far. Which so it's 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 some kind of relatively cosy suburb. Anyway, we can can yeah. glean from that. Perhaps one of our American listeners might have a better clue about hmm. what the suggested equivalent was. We can just assume it's you know it's away from the big smoke. Basically, it's mock Tudor. It's yes, old world English style. Yeah, fifteen minutes. Yeah, you're wrong. Yeah. A bit fancy. Well, it's 15 miles if they drive at 60 miles an hour, <laughs> which they probably shouldn't be doing. But, you know, but, you know. the police, they do what they like. It's true. But his son as well is a... He says he's not an agoraphobic, but he's a shut-in illustrator mm. who does children's books. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting sequence. It sure is. Meeting uh, meeting these two characters. Yes. Um... Yeah, whether you like it or not, the, the wife comes across as... Totally bonkers, doesn't she? Mrs. Lasser's uh, reaction to Cotton Hawes being particularly colourful. Oh yes, she's she's got the sort of a mental condition that means that she's got no uh, boundaries or mm. any qualms about perhaps addressing these nice young men, particularly when Cotton Hawes recognises that she's talk, talking in um, quotes from Shakespeare, and he's done this Shakespeare play at school, and so she <laughs> she says that. Uh, that line about why are you in the police or something, you should be on the stage showing your cock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a big man like you, she says, you should have been on the stage showing your cock. For a moment, there was a deep silence in the room. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's... <laughs> oh, dear. But she's a sort of tragic figure in the end. because they, they have to figure out what's up with her because she might have done it. She's manic enough that mm. she possibly killed her husband except you know yeah they don't 
they almost start investigating that because they're a bit of a loss of mm. anything. Well, they're a bit more sus- uh, suspicious of the son, aren't they? And wondering mm. whether he something to do with hers caused him to knock off the the, the father. But, um, but one of the clues they get is that the victim, George Lasser, was part of a, a gang basically called the Happy Kids mm. who are still nearby to where he lived. And so Cotton Hawes, Detective Cotton Hawes and Steve Carella go to interview the Happy Kids who, of course, are now all in their 80s. There's only three of them. And there's only three of them left. But there's a really interesting, again, like we had in one of the other books where McBain uses a, a specific real historical mm. fact of war, the same thing goes here. But because he's dealing with older characters, it means he can talk about them being in the Spanish-American War. And he talks about two very specific things. The sinking of the USS Maine, which was probably an accident of the ship itself rather than an attack on it. Mm. But that was one of the triggers for this Spanish-American War. And so he's got that real detail of these guys all from a, a town joining up together to go out to fight this war and most of them coming back. Mm. And then obviously then spending the rest of the the rest of the twentieth century until up until <laughs> 1964, where this book's set, one by one dying as old age takes them. So there's there's three of them left, and he has to go around and say, "Oh, George Lasser's dead as well. Do you know anything about him?" It's but an it, interesting thing. It but it's like a, a bit of a uh, a passing comment one of them makes about that makes the detectives think George La- Lasser's not quite the. Uh, yeah, he's a bit of a wheeler dealer. This yeah, is yeah. So he's got this log cutting business that he sells the logs to his tenants. Then they make a comment about how he, his mates had very various schemes, always on the go, and then they all they clam up as soon as they. Yeah, they really the detective trying to find yeah. um, George. Always, always had his big plans. Yeah. Like, um, oh, he had this one big plan, which was to run mm. a small-time wood-cutting business. Yeah. Uh, but they don't, yeah, they, so they know there was something else afoot, and they don't... Um, and is it sh- not a bit long after that that Corella hauls um, the sergeant in, which is a, quite a... Uh, not often you see in this, but uniform characters getting involved oh, in indeed. the stories. Yeah, it's good. I, I um, like this bit. Uh, and it's very rare that you see Steve Carella be... Totally underhand, certainly in the workplace. <laughs> Pulling rank. Great. There's there's quite a lot in this book. One of the things I think is quite good about this book, it's it's compacted into one or two moments, but there's quite a lot of detailed what the police get up to yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it talks about rank when Detective Second Grade Steve Carella is about to interview Sergeant Ralph Corey, who is a beat sergeant basically so he's out on the street so he's not like dave murchison everyone's favorite desk sergeant he is someone who's actually mm. out with the, the uniformed officers and in control of a bunch of uniforms and so there's a nice explanation of how the ranks work there as well and then steve carella hates this guy already because he knows he's he's bent he knows he's mm. taking bribes and he's but his his way of trying to find out is by sort of going friend of mine's looking for some action <laughs> and Seeing where that takes him, yeah, doesn't take him very far before he just has to basically say, "I'm watching you. I want to know." Mm. Yeah, an interesting character, Corey. Uh, while he's around, um, he's a racist. He is. Uh, also, just looked into his rank by accidentally shooting an escaping crook yeah. in the leg whilst trying to get his gun out of his holster. Yeah, he's proper <laughs> Keystone cop material, really, he is. isn't he? Assuming the Keystone cops were also racists. <laughs> well, probably, yeah. I don't remember that being in the uh, short film. It wasn't a major plot point, certainly. <laughs> it was but, mainly um, them falling off police vehicles. Uh, he's fairly vile, um, Sergeant Corey. I like the last lines in that bit, which says something along the lines of, uh, he walked out of the, uh, the squad room and says something like, uh, he was smiling. But he was worried. Yeah. Well, that's bec- that's very interesting. That's exactly what he says. Yeah. yeah very good. Because <laughs> didn't even have your book open. No. But that's that's a, that's a one of the author's little tricks to seed the notion of something. Mm. So you're like, whoa. So, so yeah, it was, he doesn't come back in for a because the chapters. sergeant was being quizzed uh, because Corella knew that if there was some sort of gambling in the basement of this place, then. This guy would, would have undoubtedly known about it. He would it. absolutely be 
taken a cut, yeah. Now, he was either incompetent or corrupt, and it was more likely both. that he was corrupt rather I than not knowing it was happening. I need to ask a question here, and I know I've asked it before, and I know I've looked into this before, what exactly is craps? Um, you know when you've had a big dinner? <laughs> It's it's just it, it's just dice, isn't it? But I don't know exactly what the rules are. I don't think it's anything that anybody. I know it's um, clearly a, it's, has played in yeah. in this country. The, I don't think. No, the, 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 it's it's a popular thing from sort of like Damon Runyon and uh, and like thirties crime fiction onwards, isn't it? But so it's uh, one of these games that you can just have a pocket full of dice and play uh, anywhere. Yeah, basically, you just need two dice and some money. I think. But I don't know what the rules are. I know, like, if you get two ones, that's snake eyes and you lose, don't you, Bob? Steve, I was showing us a picture on his phone of some colourful setup. But, yeah, it, even though I read loads and loads of Damon Bunyan stories about people playing it, I never actually got round to finding out what the rules were. Uh, when I was young and I got my first computer, which was a Commodore Plus 4, the weirdest Commodore you could possibly get that no one in this country <laughs> made games for particularly... <laughs> That's a whole. I could do a podcast about my life with a Commodore Plus Four, <laughs> but it came with a tape of games that had been programmed in BASIC, beginners mm. all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Indeed, because I learned how to program using that in BASIC. But one of the games on this tape was called Craps, and I can't remember. I think it was probably just a dice rolling yeah. simulation thing. Can't remember how it worked. But even before I think I knew Craps was a rude word. Or crap was a rude word. <laughs> it was like, oh, I can't load a thing called Craps. It's just. Jesus. It's just someone will come and arrest me. Yeah, it's such as mild rude. Well, it must be well. fairly complicated because the the rules go on for fl- for flipping. Well, wow. is that from the forever. the website of the official Craps Corporation? That looks daunting. I'll never become a mid twentieth century basement gambler at this rate. Well, let's do a spin off podcast where we learn to play craps <laughs> over fifty two weeks, gambling uh, with three five hours of time. Yeah. There's, a, there's a shooter and a stick man. Oh. A shooter. Uh, from from what I understand, each round has two phases. Oh. Come out oh. and point. This sounds as almost as complicated. as A come out roll of two, three, twelve called craps. If the shooter is said to crap out, <laughs> ends. Oh god, dear. it looks fairly complicated. Let, let's so, maybe not get into. Let's that move right on the from crap. <laughs> craps. <clears throat> that's that's the the thing, isn't it? Sort of all these things point to there's an illegal craps game going on in the mm. basement of this thing. Sergeant Ralph Corey probably knew about it. The thing that's frustrating Corella and Hawes is they can't get anyone to confess to anything. Mm. Not even to say they were there. Not even to sort of just save themselves from from a murder rap, basically. Mm. So eventually Danny Gimp, the stool pigeon, gets a couple of names to Steve Corella. And one of the good things about this book is Danny Gimp, who we already have formed a relationship with in two or three of the yes. early books... We get a lot of his background in this. Yeah, I love that. I really enjoyed it. I wrote a little uh, history of Danny Gimp. Sounds like this. Born Daniel Nelson. We know that much. Mm-hmm. We know he's... In this book, we learn he was born on Culver Avenue, which is one of the main streets in Isola. In 1938, Danny Gimp helped the 71st Precinct with busting a, a whorehouse, as it's called. Because he's a stool pigeon, he's a, a snitch, and he helped them, and he got $500 reward... Having had a cold at the same time, he took that money and thought, well, I'll go out to California for a bit, so you get a bit of sun, get myself feeling better. As he, he gets over there, he's having a nice time, meets a man in a bar, and they start drinking together. <laughs> and this guy says, do you know what, let's carry on drinking, but we need to go back to my house to pick up some more money so we can carry on drinking. So they tootle off, driving, presumably drunk already. He pops into this house, one of these big L.A. Spanish villa type buildings and comes out and is immediately caught by the police with loads of money and jewels in his hand and uh, Danny Nelson Danny Gilp, Gimps sat in the car going what? and ends up getting a five stretch in jail <laughs> which turns out to be really useful to his trade because it means he's not lying to yeah. other criminals when he says yeah I've done a stretch yeah they, they, they went down on a burglary rap and then he just seemed like a legit criminal whereas actually he's never done anything <laughs> illegal in his life and just listens out and he's the informer and he always meets Corella in a place called Andy's Pub <laughs> so that's been named a couple of times in, in this but he, he gives Corella a couple of names to follow up on this I think what's really interesting about this book is it is a piecing together book mm. for the cops. They have at least 
like four day, three or four days in one week where nothing happens, mm. but they've got enough little bits that they just need a, that little extra thing to happen, and that's one of these the traits of these stories, isn't it? The the bit of unexpected information or whatever comes along. So we don't really have any comedy characters in this particularly. No, not really. So that's one that we don't tick off on the bingo chart. Well, the, yeah, because yeah. I suppose it's the wife, isn't it? But it, she's not really she's no, it's funny more, without... more tragic yeah, exactly, rather than yeah. comedic, yeah. And even the character who's called Ali the Shark isn't particularly funny. No. He's a reformed con. Yeah. Yeah. What about the... the um, the homicide detectives, there's a couple of stand-ins, isn't oh, there? Oh, yeah. Um, it turns out, like, the other homicide detectives are just the same as... The and they've gone on holiday <laughs> together, haven't they? To Miami. <laughs> yeah, so that's... A, that's Monroe a, and... Uh, yeah, Monaghan and Monroe, the yeah. usual homicide detectives, aren't there, and they're replaced by a couple of homicide detectives called Forbes and Phelps, <laughs> who are just as bad, just yeah. as useless and wind-up as, as, as the rest yeah. of them. Apparently, almost pairs of homicide detectives always have to be alliterative too. Yeah. Don't they go on about some crime that involves a 102-year-old man being killed by his wife because she didn't... Oh, or, it, or, he's, or he's... He's killed by his mother mo- or something. Yeah, <laughs> because she didn't like his 26-year-old girlfriend. Uh, or something. They think they get the only real comedy in the, in mm. the whole book. Well, that's probably chapter one. Yeah, it is, yeah. Mm. They do get this guy, Ali the Shark, Spadino... Mm. that they interview us because he's probably been at the craps game. That's the only thing he's doing wrong, you mm. know. But he works in a bookshop, which gives a classic Ed McBain moment is Cotton Hawes trying to yes. trip him up, suddenly says to him, who wrote Strangers When We Meet? Absolutely, yeah. And the answer is, of course, Evan Hunter. <laughs> we don't get that answer in the book. But it's one of those scattered moments throughout where Hunter, Evan... Ed McBain refers to his own work in other fields as well, which is nice. And I think he does that as well in this book with a nice little scene between Cotton Hawes and Steve Carello where they discuss things that they saw at the cinema. And they discuss seeing a film called The Locusts and a film called The Ants. Mm. So they've both been off to see B-movies. But I reckon The Locusts is Ed McBain taking the piss out of the birds, which has obviously just come off the back of making that. Yeah, it seems likely, doesn't it, really? And perhaps not having the best time and being a bit concerned about the reaction it got. Because this description of the locusts is, this girl brings some locusts or some, <laughs> not locusts, like crickets or grasshoppers or something, mm. doesn't she, as a gift to someone. Yeah. Which is exactly what happens in the birds. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But with birds. And then it all goes to all goes to hell. Have you seen the film Them? I haven't, no. I, 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 I feel like I've um, missed out because it does sound like very much the kind of thing I definitely love. But Yeah, because clearly that's what the ants is in this yeah, universe. <laughs> that's one of the little slices of life bits, isn't it? Not seen yeah. it. No. As we move along with the story... I did, well, I wrote a timeline of how long the actual events in this story mm. take. So it starts on January the 3rd, 1964, yeah. and it is 1964, because the day the days check out, mm-hmm. and the, the dates that I mentioned check out as well. We have stuff that happens on January the 3rd, January the 4th, January the 6th, mm. January the 10th. So there's like four days where this case goes totally cold, yeah. and the way... McBain fills it up is by having really detailed explanation of all the other cases that mm, the detectives yeah. deal with in that time. Yeah, it was quite which interesting. Goes from the sort of ludicrous, a girl taking her clothes off and dancing around in a fountain, to Cotton Hawes having someone spitting blood all up the front of him and calling him Papa as he dies. You know, it's an amazing way of, of saying mm. this is police work, this is. Yeah the run of madness that you, you would deal yeah. with on a day-to-day like a basis. It's like a little montage. It is a montage. That's a very good way of describing it. I... It's like the bit in, in the romantic comedy where people try on hats, but with more spitting blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have January the 10th, January the 13th, 14th, 16th, and on the 17th, everything comes to a head. So just over a fortnight then. Yeah. Mm. Which... You know, I can't tell if that's a long time or a short time, really. Sometimes it's bad, to be honest. It's probably quite prompt for one of these investigations, I'd have thought, for it to be fully resolved. Indeed, yeah. But as the books go, probably quite short. In that meet, 
During the meantime, that's not right. During, <laughs> during, the, mean, during the meanwhile? That should be a new phrase, though, shouldn't it? During the meantime, I'll go make a cup of tea. <laughs> but they've had all sorts going on. They, they end up following up, as you suggested earlier, this, this story about the, the actual victim himself and how he paid for his wife's treatment. And that leads them down this really interesting avenue of finding out about the victim that doesn't help in the slightest <laughs> with working out how he was killed or why. Well, they know how he was killed, rather than well, why he was the, killed. The, the one thing they find out is that he must have had a source of money more yeah. than being a janitor could have ever given him. Think, yeah, yeah. That, that's the one thing it definitely cements for them, that he definitely has... It doesn't help them find out what that is, but they definitely know that all didn't meet the yeah. eye, really. Basically, he's constantly had some sort of slightly... Yeah, um, well, certainly at that time yeah, he did. Yeah. And so, they, yeah, they're constantly just going back and grilling people because yeah. they, they think they know everybody in his circle, mm. but they just don't know everything about. And is it after that that they go and grill that Siggy Roo again? Yeah, so Siggy Roo is the other name that they get off Danny Kim. They talk and he's to a bit dodgy as well. They find out from his employer, from retired his employer. accountant. You see, everyone's old in this book, mm. uh, and he's this is a retired accountant. Yeah, it's his um, former employers, like almost like a kind of good McBain kind of uh, character. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not he's quite broad, isn't he? Sort of. He's not not like particularly entertaining. He has his moments. Uh, I, I like. The, he, he goes against type for who he, who he would be and yeah, who was expect what you'd expect of him as the in his job and stuff. Yeah. Uh, you talk nice. <laughs> but it, they managed to put it together with something that the sun says, eventually, that connects it. And they have this moment of revelation. This light bulb goes on, but it doesn't illuminate anything. <laughs> which is quite a nice touch to the story. Mm. And perhaps this is why people may find this boring, because of this dead end. This mm. huge dead end. They've spent ages investigating this. But that's the nature of police work. Indeed. Presumably. And you couldn't scrape away at that anymore and get any further with it. We need to talk about the ending, really. And well, there's another fracas with an axe, isn't there? So, yeah, it almost... Goes back to the beginning. Yeah, it loops back on itself and we have an incident with an axe in a basement of a block of flats, essentially. Couldn't think of what the word was. There. Mm-hmm. Tenement, that's the word I was oh, looking for. One. What do you think about the resolution? I see, I don't know whether we should give this away, but it's because we haven't even mentioned... Something slash one. Yes, indeed. Well, wait, I don't think we need to mention that. Perhaps this will be the first one we can do, and we won't. It's give one of the these things. Away. It's like it. It seems like the motivation for the whole thing is pretty shoddy. But I think that's kind of the point, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. I think he enjoys occasionally pointing out uh, that. People commit crimes for all kinds of reasons. They're not yeah. always like the best of reasons. They're not always anything particularly serious, even. Well, does not Sam Grossman give the game away fairly early on, where he's trying to explain about something, and Carella's like scoffing what he's saying down yeah. the phone, and he says, "Well, do you, don't you don't you remember that people will commit murder in this city for a few cents?" Yeah, yeah, uh, um, and it. it it's kind of that, really. I mean, it's just there's all manner of what one person yeah. thinks is a justified reason is uh, seems crazy. It, it, for it's, it's a thing that will crop up, has cropped up already in the series and will crop up again, that people don't always have to have some kind of epic, kind of Shakespearean kind well, of yeah, it's motive. The, it's the flip side but, of the deaf man, isn't it? Exactly, it's yeah. It's no huge planned machination type mm. thing it is a day-to-day crime yeah and it's it's petty and it's you if you try and think about it too hard you go mad yeah. like sometimes well, the person who's, who's committed the crime doesn't even really if, they, if you actually ask them they can't really back up why they've done it either but I think people do commit crimes like mm. that so I think yeah I was although, quite satisfied with the although it's not like sort of in a traditional dramatic sense kind of it you know, some Greek tragedy and probably mm. wouldn't be too happy with it. I, I think it works. It makes sense. Mm. Fair enough. I, I, I agree. Well, I think we've left enough there to uh, tantalise the <laughs> as yet axe virgins. Yeah. So more people can read it and then tell us that they thought it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, so perhaps we should contemplate winding up Kenneth and seeing if we can put our scores into it. Oh. While I start pumping coal into his chutes, I will pass Steve over the ticker tape to do his, his revision of the last... Oh, yeah. into his perhaps shoes. you could give us the last five We don't have the graph to hand. Is the graphical display or The graphical display is there as well somewhere, but, you know... Oh, oh there it is. Now. We're on an upwards trajectory at the moment. Oh, I see you wanted the trend, I see. Yeah, well, like, I'm, I'm up. So, yeah, well, there we are. I won't, um, uh, you know, we, we're still talking the uh, the high point of King's Ransom at 89 and the the low point of Till uh, death. Like Love, is it? Where's Till Death on there? 69, yeah. 67, the empty hours. Oh, oh yeah. Came in worse than that. That was a structural issue. I've forgotten what I, what I personally scored ten plus one at, but I think I was I was on the higher end of the spectrum. I think you were, yes, you were more committed to the. Uh, what happened in ten plus one? I always do with this. That was the one we lost in with the yeah, sniper. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. See, I thought that, that was corking, but I, very different to this this one. You know. Se- Indeed, well, seventy-seven. Uh, yeah, seventy-seven. Ten plus one. That's in the top. Very respectable. One, yeah. The the, the earlier ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right, well. Cool. So who's going first then? Shall we go first? To score it. Yeah, go you it. rarely go first. I'm going to go first, and I think the, the nature of this story is that it is solid, as I say, it's solid mid-season fare. Mm. Not that this is mid-season in the 87th precinct <laughs> no. by any means, and probably the period that would be classed as mid-season is absolutely storming mm. if you were to look at it in an overview of the series. Absolutely. But I would say, as a result of that, I would give this 65 police shields, and that's a solid 65. It's not a wavering 65, you know. That, it could be higher, but I think 65 sums up the... This is re-readable, it's reliable, it's a good story. You, you can get through it in two or three sittings mm. and enjoy it. So it gets a 65 police shield rating for me. Bleep bloop, Kenneth. Well, okay. I'll pass that on to uh, Steve-O. 65, well... <laughs> not noise. Yeah. No, I, I must admit I was surprised at our listeners not liking it because I very much enjoyed rereading it. Mm. And um, I quite liked the... Perhaps sometimes you get a bit frustrated with the bunting sometimes that you get oh, right. so I was quite uh, oh, crime bunting yeah I was quite it was a proper whodunit really yeah I suppose uh, it is but with a, quite an interesting um, cast yeah but then again not cut into the chase I would say 75 75 oh. Oh, a 10, 10 police shield advance yeah, on mine I, I, I would say I, yeah and Mr Morgan Brown okay well I mean, I was interested to to see the comments that we got. I, I think everyone's a little bit mean to it. Uh, I, I, that said, I do feel like it's a relatively perfunctory kind of entry into the the, the series. I think perfunctory is a good word, and not not a bad. I, I, word. I don't I don't mean that in a in it's a not derisive, pejorative at all. No, absolutely. It, it's keeping the series going, and it does a good job. I missed the bunting. I'm sorry. I, I think um, put out more flags. That, that narrative voice that sometimes is, is is so like strong in there isn't really particularly yeah, a, a presence point, there, and I missed that a bit. And I, I miss some of the kind of quirkier characters. That said, I, I think it rattles along beautifully, and it was very entertaining. And I, I read it in like a day and a half or something and it was yeah. it was loads of fun I'm going to give it I, I'm going to go low just because I feel like I've, 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 I've scored highly too much <laughs> I'm going to go for 62 I think 62 Ooh. okay that silence was the sound of a very smooth running <laughs> Kenneth doing his calculations and returning the value of 67 police shields oh, well there we go well I think that's fair. Where's that in the, the scheme of things? The scheme... Bottom. It's it's low. I, I will say it's low. It's 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 down there with the empty hours. But... The worst book yet. <laughs> but it... You know, that's funny. because then mean now. In terms, of our, in terms of our scores so far, that makes it look like it's one of the lowest ones. But I think it's more a reflection of the nature of, of the book in the grand scheme of things than... Hmm. than 
a lack of quality yeah. in the book. No, that, that that's it. We we know there are highs to come. Uh, we also know there are probably lows to come yeah. as well. Have we undermined uh, our argument? That's one of the uh, one of the questions. Well, who knows what will turn up when we return for the next episode? What was the next one? The next episode is about the book "He Who Hesitates." Mm. It's another one that's new to me, so I'm excited. It's a bit oh. different, this one. Oh. A bit different. It's causing Steve-O's brow to yeah, furrow. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember whether it... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hear uncertainty. <laughs> well, that being the case, let us certainly end for now <laughs> and let people get on reading it. Excellent. And until next time, I'm going to say goodbye, and so is Steve-O. Chop, chop. <laughs> and Morgan. Fairly well. Bye. Chop, chop. <laughs>